The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. Today, call it a big tech train wreck. Google, Microsoft, Meta, and now Amazon taking it on the chin this quarter. Amazon alone losing $200 billion in market cap. But what comes next? And what should you do with the rest of the names? Apple's the only mega cap so far to see green post results, record revenues for a September quarter. And don't think we forgot about Twitter. Deirdre's live on the ground as the Musk era begins. We're going to discuss all of that in just a moment, Dee. Yeah, we're going to start with Amazon, though. Um, You know, we had the last of Big Tech report this week, and this is a company, of course, you see now share prices are declining. It was hit really on the consumer side and the enterprise side. At the midpoint Q4 revenue growth, guys, forecast at 5% year over year, and that would be a record low for this current all-important holiday season, which has accounted for nearly a third of annual revenue historically. AWS growth, that was a major focus. It slowed to 27% growth year over year. Um, The CFO, Brian Olsowski, talked about enterprise customers really trying to save money here. Remember, this is a consumption-based business model. So this is a cost that they can cut on the cost side, guys. This was a huge focus this week. Um, Investors found that Amazon had trouble reining it in. Remember, John, that Amazon very quickly, maybe the first among big tech this year, to rein in those costs, say that we need to become more efficient. We overhired during the pandemic, but more work to do there for CEO Andy Jassy. Yeah, uh, but it makes sense, right? I I think we set this up pretty well yesterday, talking about this Andy Jassy situation. It's not a Mark Zuckerberg situation where he's leaning into spending despite the macro headwinds and the issues that we see with the business. They actually are tightening the belt. Now, you can argue maybe they got a few inches left to go as they tighten that belt, but Amazon's responding to this environment. And yes, part of it is macro. Part of it is the slowdown in consumer that we're seeing that was reflected in Q3 that's projected out again into Q4. But there's nothing fundamentally here that I see, Carl, where you question, does Amazon have to change its playbook overall, either in cloud or in e-commerce or across advertising and marketing because they're unprepared for this situation or they're doing something heading into this tough environment that investors fundamentally are spooked by? Yeah, I, I guess you could maybe make that argument certainly on the on the retail side, having uh, retrenched on their warehouse and their headcount. I think the question on AWS that was getting interesting, John, if you think about an era in which startups had low cost of capital and needed cloud right away, and that led to a huge, what is now the engine of profitability at the company. Uh, But if that changes for good, maybe some of these uh, AWS revenues in the 20s, let's say, and certainly the operating margin guidance, uh, that might, that's gonna be a harder thing to repair. Yeah. It will, Carl, and I'm sticking to what I said yesterday, which is that I think competition between the platforms and the best of breed players is is what starts to come into focus over the next few quarters. What does Amazon acquire? What do they build? With whom do they compete? Dee, it sounds like you want to jump in here too. (laughs) 
Well, I was going to say, I know you're talking, you're focused on competition between, let's say, the hyperscalers and the best of breed, but what about the competition among the hyperscalers themselves? I know that this pie, they tell us this all the time, is growing bigger and bigger. There's room for all of them. But what does that mean for margins? And I think the street was a little bit concerned about that on the AWS side, is that those margins are narrowing a little bit. And is that the macro environment or is it competition? You know, we know that Google is trying to make a big play in this space. It's by far long the number three player, but it's prepared to lose money to gain more share. Well, I think competition has always been a big issue here, and Amazon itself, as well as the others, have been lowering costs as, uh, as consumption and demand has gone up. But another way to work at that profitability issue is consolidation, right, is, is to buy things, is to deepen your stack yeah. and crowd out your competition and say, hey, customer, buy more of this from us. I think we're going to see more of that. Let's move on, uh, meanwhile, to Apple continuing to be in a class of its own, heading higher after strong results in a quarter that has seen Microsoft, Google, and now Amazon take a tumble. Uh, Apple's the outlier, Steve Kovac, right? Yeah, that's exactly right, John. And look, Apple beat on the top and bottom lines, and there were some misses within individual segments. But the big story here, guys, is the iPhone demand has been resistant to the cratering demand Apple's peers have seen in PCs and smartphones. So I asked Tim Cook what he sees as far as demand goes, and he said, look, it's the iPhone 14 Pros that are still really constrained, and that's good news, actually, for revenue growth on the iPhone side, even if unit sales remain flat as long as they can get those out the door by the end of the holiday quarter. Apple also benefiting from the fall in demand overall, with Cook telling me commodities like memory chips are cheaper, so it helps keep costs down on top of the slowdown in hiring he also told me about. And look, not everything is super rosy here. Services are still really under pressure from foreign exchange, a fall in ad spending, and a drop in video gaming on mobile devices. And Mac revenues are expected to fall significantly, too, in this current quarter because they're having tough comps from last year's MacBook Pro launch. That was the redesigned MacBook Pro that sold really well last year. And overall, foreign exchange is going to be a big problem this current holiday quarter, and they're expecting it to hurt sales by about 10 percentage points, guys. Uh, and, and so, Steve, what kind of inventory position uh, was Apple in? There's all that conversation about, oh, they're, you know, cutting orders of this or that, stopping down production, that could just mean they're making sure not to make too much of any individual thing once they see where demand is weighted, which appears for the iPhone to be toward the higher end demand for Macs, still seems to be relatively strong. Was that reflected in these results? Yeah, it was. And look, keep in mind, this was only eight days of iPhone 14 sales, John. So it's gonna not going to be until we get results for this current quarter that we get a full picture of what all that looked like. But you want to talk about inventory, you can walk in right now and buy the regular model of the iPhone 14, no problem. It's those high-end pros that are feeling the constraints. So that is a good sign, at least on the revenue side, that people really want and are willing to spend a thousand bucks or more on those higher-end iPhones as opposed to the, the regular models, even with that plus model that came out a few weeks ago with a bigger screen, uh, kind of a tweener device in between the pro and the regular. So look, inventory is like they're, they're constrained. They're constrained on the watch too. Tim Cook told me they can't make enough of those new Apple Watch Ultras uh, to meet the demand either. 
Uh, yep, certainly some uh, some fallout. People are watching uh, Skyworks and Corvo uh, and some of the Apple supplier names as well on that on that chain concern. Steve, uh, great stuff on Apple. Let's talk some Twitter as well. As we said, uh, D is at Twitter HQ on this uh, in the beginning of this new era. D. Yeah, I'm here in the middle of San Francisco, Market Street, as the Musk era begins. Um, it's just after 8 a.m. local time, and some of the companies. More than 7,000 employees are just getting in and probably have a lot of questions and not sure what to expect now, even if they'll keep their jobs. Of course, last night we heard that CEO Prag Agrawal as well as CFO Ned Siegel have departed the company. Yay is back on Twitter. Change is here, guys. There's other cameras around me. This is a moment. And Julia, you have spent a lot of time outside of this building over the years as well through, what, five or six different CEOs. How would you describe this moment? Well, yeah, it's really interesting right now because I remember that street corner well, Dee, that you're standing on. And the question is, what is going on in that building behind you? And what are Elon Musk's challenges and his opportunities to fix them? He's taking over the, the company at a time when there are three major constituencies he has to deal with and reassure. First, those employees. By the way, many of them used to working from home. Seems like Elon Musk is going to expect them to come into the office. And the big question of whether or not they have jobs. There were some reports out there a couple weeks ago that he was going to lay off 75 percent of the company's staff. He assured people that that number was not accurate. But the, we've already seen hundreds of employees leave Twitter concerned about what the future might hold in terms of their job security. So I think he's going to have to figure out how to retain that employee base. And then, of course, there's the question of advertisers. Advertisers don't want to be on a platform that's a free-for-all. He's already um, taken some steps, written this sort of open letter to advertisers saying that he's going to make sure that the platform is safe for their messages in terms of a brand safety standpoint. And then, of course, the users. He laid out this very ambitious vision of how many hundreds and hundreds of millions of users he was going to be able to add to Twitter. And now we have to see what changes he has in store. Remember, D, he's very interested in the subscriber um, model, the subscription model, but it takes a long time to build that up. And for now, this is a platform that is really reliant on advertising. Mm -hmm. Julia, this occurred to me last night, uh, and, and tell me if you think I'm wrong here. Uh, if you want to invest uh, as a retail investor or any investor, if you want to invest in social media right now, you're about to not have the Twitter option. You kind of don't have the Twitter option anymore. It's really close to $54.20 a share right now, and our assumption is, you know, as of next week, it's not going to be trading anymore. Um, so Twitter's off the table. Meta? Meta's not moving based on anything having to do with social media. It's based on how much Zuckerberg is spending on the metaverse. TikTok is not a public company. You can't invest in that. It's pretty much just Snap and is there any uh, Pinterest? Maybe, right? The, the, some of the well, biggest the players is, yeah, are not gonna, really investable options right now, right? Yeah. Well, look, and I think there's also this question is, and we're going to be talking about Pinterest more later in the show, but is Pinterest more of a social shopping platform rather than a social network? Snap, yeah. some of Snap's most valuable features are communications features, not necessarily social networking. So I think we need to take a step back and re-examine sort of what are these social platforms? They're social platforms, but maybe they're not so much about the social network as they are about communications and groups and other things like that. But I think we're really seeing a redefinition, D, of what these tools are for. And it's going to be really interesting to see how Elon Musk sort of manages this global town square, which is what uh, Twitter has been called yeah. by various CEOs over the years and how he makes sure that that town square is a safe place to be both for uh, the people in it as well as the brands. Yeah. 
a lot of the questions that people inside behind me are wondering. And I love this discussion because it brings up the question, are these social media companies, are they technology companies? I don't know if you read our, our good friend Nilay Patel's piece in The Verge this morning, but he argues that this is a political problem that Musk now has on his hands, John, not a technological one. The technology as of now is not that important. And he's about to you know, find that out, certainly, especially if we see former President Trump come back on the platform next week. Yeah, well, <laughs> the technology is always a problem because they've got some product evolution to do, but maybe not the most pressing one, certainly not the most pressing one now. We're going to move on, turn to another earnings mover, Intel, up about 10%, one of the top gainers on the NASDAQ this morning after delivering a beat in Q3 and also announcing a series of cost-cutting measures, a miss on the guide, lowering their outlook through the end of the year but we're gonna take a closer look at a CNBC exclusive with Intel CEO, Pat Gelsinger. Pat, welcome back. Um, you know, things are tough, but the reaction so different from last quarter because that quarter, which people were describing as kitchen sink, you know, that guy down, you were talking about inventories and the slowdown, uh, you, you were just a little bit below the midpoint of the guidance. So tell me where you are inventory position wise and demand position wise compared to where you expected to be with that tough quarter last quarter. Well, thanks, John, and always a pleasure to join you, Carl and Deidre, on the show. And uh, this quarter, we executed well and uh, delivered you know, within the range that we had set. And I think everybody last quarter was saying, boy, what's going on? Well, we proved to be much more of a foreteller of the market's uh, outlook than I think even we realized uh, at the uh, time. You know, product execution was solid in the quarter. We were a share gainer in areas like the uh, PC market. So overall, I'd say, boy, we were happy with how we executed. You know, we also had some unique good news as we uh, got the Mobileye IPO uh, completed this week as well with very uh, good trading and above the range. So I'd say we had a lot of good things uh, going on. But we also said, boy, market conditions, there is no good news on the horizon. U.S., Europe, Asia, all of them look to have headwinds you know, for the foreseeable future. So we took down our range for the rest of the year. And of course, as you say, we're making cost adjustments to our business, even as we continue to drive forward strategically for the long-term transformation of this great technology company. Oh, let's get into the tough stuff, Pat. What kinds of layoffs are you talking about here over what period of time to achieve these cost reductions that you're talking about? And what kinds of adjustments are you making in the turnaround plan, whether it's the implementation of Foundry, your expectation that you can um, you know, get these new process nodes done in the period of time that you had set out, and maybe some adjustments to when equipment is moving into these fabs that you're building. Is the plan still the plan and are you cutting to be able to continue executing the turnaround or has the turnaround timeline shifted at all? Yeah, and uh, boy, a lot in that question, John. And you know, at the highest level, the plan is the plan. We remain on the strategy that we laid out, you know, building these new sites, getting back to unquestioned technology leadership. And as I said, five nodes in four years, all of that is healthy underway and progressing as expected and take some investments. At the same time, hey, you know, the market size adjustments, you know, need to occur. So we have strategic capital versus the capacity capital, and we're making adjustments here while we stray stay true to our strategy and plans and new sites like Ohio and Germany and build out of Arizona. You know, those are long-term investments, but 
we have to then measure how much equipment we put into that because that's when you make the bigger capital commitments and those have to be aligned with the market environment. So that's where we're making capital adjustments but staying true to the strategy that we've laid out. Obviously in the near term, and I had an all company meeting last night where, boy, you know, it's, uh, it's painful, it's soulful to have to tell great Intel employees that we have to make some reductions. But I'd remind you that we're a fixed cost business largely, which means that two thirds of our costs are in factories and depreciation. And thus our cost efforts are first focused on how to make those factories more efficient and how to take those large fixed assets and drive them to be higher productivity, higher margin entities. And that's where our internal foundry model is so critical. We're gonna benchmark them, operate them as a world-class foundry and the margin stacking potential as they're producing margin and our products produce margin is the hallmark of what we're out to accomplish with IDM 2.0, as we've called it. Be mm -hmm. a manufacturer at scale, be a foundry at scale and deliver leadership products. That's the business plan we're on and we're making cost adjustments to the market to simultaneously push the gas pedal on the strategy and the investments for the long term. Let, let me get to the individual product level or at least um, into the, the segment level and, and really talk about data center first. Um, we just saw the results from Amazon and you know we saw the results from Microsoft. Cloud softening somewhat with the hyperscaler crowd. You mentioned this as well. Uh, it seems to me like there could be a considerable uh, softening or digestion of the existing equipment that the hyperscalers have bought. And I'm wondering how much of that you're factoring into your 2023 guide. Uh, are, are you factoring in the hyperscalers potentially pulling back significantly as overall uh, global demand softens and not buying as much? Or are you just factoring in a little bit of that? Yeah, and as we think about the data center market, we sort of view it in enterprise, what happens with the hyperscalers and what happens in China. And those are sort of the three big things that we look at. And as uh, you suggest, you know, they're softening in enterprise, some not as much softening in the cloud space, but we've definitely seen a stepping back for the first time in a while for the uh, big cloud guys. And we're not optimistic on China uh, either. And that's why I say there's just not a lot of good news on the horizon to look forward to and why we've lowered our outlook. You know, that said, at the same time, even as we see the market weakening, our product positioning is getting better. You know, we uh, PRQ'd the uh, Sapphire Rapids, a critical, critical product for us. And we're gonna ramp that. That'll be the fastest ramping Xeon to a million units that we've ever done. We also had a good quarter on execution uh, as well, which, you know, this has been an area that we've been struggling with execution. And the next three generation products all hit key milestones this quarter. So we feel very good that our roadmap is uh, strengthening. And in this business, if you wanna hire ASPs, you have a better product. If you wanna hire margins, you have a better product. And the products are getting better quite rapidly for us, so we feel good about our outlook, even as the market softens a bit. When you, when you think about the enterprise softening, Pat, um, how do you think it's eventually going to compare to the drawdown we saw in PC demand? Yeah, we don't see the enterprise shift as harsh, uh, uh, Carl, as the uh, PC shift, which is driven more by consumer requirements. So here you have a more, I'll say, balanced view of it, but definitely the enterprise is softened. 
the cloud has softened. And uh, the result of that is we see the overall data center segment being a uh, you know flattish uh, year on year as we're looking at it uh, right now. And uh, the outlook for next year is uh, maybe a little bit of optimism as you get to the second half of the year, but not a very uh, positive mm. outlook there for a bit. All right, Pat, I want to slip one more in because I think a lot of investors need to hear the perspective on this. There was all this talk of a few quarters ago around the time of the CHIPS Act about how strong demand for chips was and was going to be. Talk about the difference between the long-term demand for chips. Do you expect that to continue to be strong with semiconductors in just about everything? And then the short-term demand for chips, which has fallen off very quickly. Some people will say, well, see, we didn't need all those chips anyway. Is that the case? Yeah, and clearly, uh, you know, I'll say 12-month economic cycles do not dictate, you know, long-term market uh, trends. You know, and we still absolutely are committed and believe firmly, all of the analysts agree, you know, that as we get past maybe this 12-month cycle, you know, that semiconductors double this decade. And as we get to a trillion-dollar mark, uh, market for uh, semiconductors, and the critical role it plays, even in this uh, negative economic cycle, every aspect of your life is becoming more digital and all digital runs on semiconductors. So even as we go through this cycle, and we've been through many semiconductor cycles before, we know how to manage through those uh, tough cycles, we're making five-year capital decisions. It takes us that long to build a factory. And uh, even as we still have some areas of semiconductors that we still have shortages today, supply demand will come into balance more quickly in the near term. But all of these strategies are about what does it look like for the second half of the decade. And for that, you know, we believe that the CHIPS Act, the most seminal piece of industrial policy legislation that has occurred in the United States since World War II, similarly, the EU CHIPS Act, these are about long-term leadership, long-term rebuilding the supply chains, geographically balanced resilience, and the most important you know, thing for the you know for national semiconductor for national security, for the economic welfare. Every industry relies on it. Yes, we believe this was a profoundly important step, and we're proud to have paid a part in it. All right, Pat Gelsinger, uh, challenging times for Intel, certainly for the economy as well. Thanks for joining us exclusively on CNBC with the stock near sec uh, session highs up more, uh, Carl, than 10.5%. Yeah, uh, Thank you, leading John. the S&P uh, and the Dow's up 600. Sticking with earnings, let's focus on uh, big tech and a big week for technology. Apple, a bright spot, as John said. Amazon, Meta, Alphabet, all down huge on the week after reporting. Is now the time to start taking a look at some of these names or stay away? Joining us this morning, Needham analyst Laura Martin uh, joins us. Laura, I got to give you some props because a lot of the calls that you made earlier in the year, namely uh, taking Meta to underperform in July, really paid off this week. Stock's down 40% since. Um, has your view changed? No, it's gotten more negative, but at least I think the market's catching up with the fact that Mark, is the CEO here, is very clear about what he's doing. And I appreciate his courage because he's basically telling you, look, we spent $10 billion on the metaverse last year. We're going to spend 20 in, right now in 2022. And we're going to spend more next year. And our CapEx is going up. All the while, they reported um, negative growth in revenue. Like, that's a courageous act. So he's telling the market the market is catching up with what he's saying. And I think the only way we are now sort of different from the market that's caught up with us is that we're not sure there's a core business here. We're not sure that if TikTok wins, 
that there actually is value in Instagram or Facebook. Certainly, we're not sure about the metaverse spending, but I think that's where we might be a little more negative than the average Wall Street person now, is it's unclear to us in a network effects business that if TikTok wins, that there's anything left to value of Facebook. I think that's where we are now. Uh, now, your point back in the summer was to use Meta as a source of funds. Uh, a, for, a source of funds to, to fund what now, Laura? <laughs> well, we're more negative about Google because their costs and capex <laughs> keep going up. So don't put it there. <laughs> um, you know, the safe haven was Apple. Oh, my gosh. What a well-run company, right? So we had 42% operating margins on $90 billion of revenue, up 8%, all-time record, and it generated $24 billion of free cash flow in the September quarter and bought in shares worth $29 billion. So there's a constant floor under those Apple shares because they are in the market spending every dollar of their free cash flow, giving you a buyer in the market. It's a lovely business model. It's a lovely, stable, <laughs> predictable management team. You know, we had record sales of wearables. We had record sales of Macs. And uh, iPads was a little, uh, you know, underperforming, but iPhones were right on target, despite, you know, rumors that they might be weak. So, you know, sort of hitting on all cylinders in Apple, and it feels like a really safe haven in big tech today. Yeah. I think what you're describing is how a lot of Wall Street feels about Apple that was, you know, only underscored with those results last night. But Laura, let me ask you about Amazon, um, because you're not exactly happy about how they're spending. You say you're disappointed that they're taking their billions of dollars in operating profit from cloud and advertising, putting that into e-commerce. But isn't that the Amazon playbook? Why we're here? Why it's so dominant in e-commerce? It's never made money or much money. It's always been these other businesses, cloud namely, and now there's also advertising to pay for it. Yeah, so I think our disappointment here, which we were pretty we were pretty harsh on them this morning, I would say in our note, was um, two years ago, their operating margins were six and seven percent. Last year in 21, they were five, four and five percent. And now this year they've been running two percent. Okay, so the confusion for us is in the last three years, they've added cloud, which in the quarter generated $5.4 billion of operating income. They report that number. We know that the ad business, because we cover 20 of them, generates about 60% margins, and they reported $10 billion of revenue, which means $6 billion of operating income in the quarter came from their advertising business. You add cloud and you add advertising, that's $11 billion of operating income, but the enterprise called Amazon reported only $2.5 billion of operating income, which implies that everything else is losing $8 billion on $100 billion of revenue, which is their core business. So I think what we object to is they're taking very high margin, high return on capital businesses and reinvesting that money in a business that's just losing more money. I guess they call it their core business. But if a business doesn't have pricing power, I don't understand why you're in it. You're either better and can price that way like Apple, or you're actually really a bad competitor and you have to compete on price. I feel like Apple argues they're best in class, but then they're reinvesting profits from other businesses into lowering their price point and competing on price. Which is it? Yeah, but the, these are such different businesses and doesn't advertising give sort of an Amazon a pass to do this? I mean, a few years ago, we weren't even talking about Amazon advertising. Now. It brings in more than their subscriptions, including Prime. So doesn't that kind of tell you that if you're an Amazon investor, you're certainly looking at different things. You're not necessarily looking at that profitability the same way that you are as Apple. You're looking for them to innovate and create the next big $10 billion business. Don't they have to do this to find that next business? 
You know, I guess where I would push back is say we're running a not-for-profit here. Amazon is on track. Amazon is on track to report 500 billion of revenue and zero operating income. So we're running a not-for-profit. Let's go invest in the Red Cross. It does more good. I don't. Scale is supposed to bring profitability. It is not happening here. I don't understand why we're calling this a business if it doesn't make money. Laura, we're out of time, but next time maybe we can talk um, your view on what Alphabet's worth broken up versus together. But great to see you. Congratulations on some of these calls from months ago. That's our Laura, Laura Martin over in Needham. John? Yeah, spicy and substantive. Meanwhile, Amazon's at 100 bucks even, down 10%. Apple's rising, a huge Twitter deal. There's more on all three names this hour. Tech Check is just getting started. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Pinterest shares are up more than 9% after the company beat expectations across the board and talked about the advantage of its focus on shopping. Pinterest 8% revenue growth surpassed expectations, topping Snap's 6% revenue growth in the quarter and Meta's 4% revenue decline. And while Snap is forecasting flat revenue in Q4 and Meta is projecting another revenue decline, Pinterest says they expect Q4 revenue growth in the mid-single-digit percentage range. Now, Pinterest is bucking this downward trend we're seeing at other companies because of its focus on shopping. Users come to the platform with an intent to buy. And as CEO Bill Reddy works to make every product on the platform shoppable, the company will be able to show brands the return on investment of their ads. Barclays says Pinterest is, quote, currently the top of the pedestal for digital ads. We think shares can trade well compared to the group into next year's analyst day. Morgan Stanley is a little bit more cautious, saying, quote, pins may continue to trade well on a relative basis given the hope of management turnaround, but we need more details on how management intends to execute. Now, with Pinterest shares down about 33% year to date, a third of analysts have a buy rating on the stock, 64% have a hold, and 3% have a sell. Carl? Uh, quite, quite a story, Julia. Meantime, if you want more on the quarter, you'll hear from uh, Bill Reddy tonight on Mad Money. Oh, that's coming up at 6 p.m. Eastern time. In the meantime, Dow's up 575. Let's get a news update with Seema Modi. Hey, Seema. Hi, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, was violently assaulted by an intruder in their house in San Francisco. NBC News reporting the weapon used in the assault was a hammer. A spokesperson for the speaker says Paul Pelosi has been hospitalized and is expected to make a full recovery and that a suspect has been arrested. A speaker Pelosi was not in San Francisco at the time. On to some economic data, pending home sales shrinking sharply last month as mortgage rates topped 7%. The 10.2% drop was more than twice what analysts had expected. Over the year, sales have sunk 31%. Excluding a brief plunge at the beginning of the pandemic, it's been the slowest pace in 22 years. And overseas, Britain's Royal Mint has produced the first coin with King Charles's image on them. King Charles is shown without a crown, unlike most coins showing his mother, Queen Elizabeth. The new coins will go into circulation by the end of the year. Carl, back to you. 
Seema, thanks for that. Apple definitely defying the big tech meltdown today. We'll get more on the quarter and whether you should be buying here as it's back almost to the 200 day for the first time since September 12th. Tech Check is back in two. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Turning back to Apple this morning, bright spot in a tough week for big tech. Our next guest maintains a neutral, though, with the target of 160, noting that while the performance is better than his its peers, he still expects a slowdown ahead tied to weaker macro. Uh, joining us this morning, B of A's Wamsi Mohan. Wamsi, we talked a lot about the print going into it. Uh, do you think you were too cautious in retrospect or not? No, I don't think so at all. Thanks for having me. Look, I think that what the quarter has really told you is that the upside really didn't come from iPhones, even in the September quarter. The December quarter guide has a very wide range, right? So it could be you know, up 1%, it could be up 7%. A deceleration in, in that range is, is a very massive range. But when you take out the extra week from that, the implied trajectory is really negative. And I think that's where the issue is. The issue is, what do we know about the trajectory of demand as it pertains to the March quarter and the June quarter? And that's where we see that there is a real disconnect between estimates, where the street is, and where expectations are, versus where we think numbers are really going to come in. So if anything, I would say that the quarter was more of a reaffirmation of a deceleration across the board, right? You, you really saw outsized performance on the Mac. But outside of that, you know, we're, we're really looking into a December quarter that has got probably flat to down on a apples-to-apples basis. And uh, when you look at services, <laughs> it's an even more meaningful deceleration in that regard. So I think services going X growth, that's, that's material from a valuation multiple standpoint. So our concerns are very much uh, the same that we had going into the print. Services actually disappointed our, our probably street low number of 7% growth, and they came in at 5 So we, we, we still feel that there is ample risk to earnings estimates, and, and we're going to be closer to $6 for fiscal, uh, fiscal year 23 EPS yeah. rather than you know the, the, the much higher estimates currently out there. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's been a lot of uh, dissection of the calendar issue, to be sure. Are you, are you thinking of the risk, though? Is it embedded in the company as a, as a services company or a hardware company? Yeah, look, I mean, it's a great question. I think the valuation multiple has expanded because of two reasons. One, because the services growth has been strong, right? And the second is because the gross margin structure has been great. Now, the gross margin structure continues to be very solid, right? And they're benefiting from, you know, things like commodity pricing, where if you look at memory pricing, it could be down 40, 45 percent year on year. These are, you know, transitory cyclical things that are helping the gross margin. But but nonetheless, I mean, you have to admit that the gross margin story remains very much intact. The chink in the armor, I would say, is really on the services side. You've got 66% of services revenue that is decelerating meaningfully. That's App Store and that's the Google payments to Apple. And those two, you, you really can't do too much. They are trying to do whatever they can from a pricing standpoint on the services side as it pertains to their own portfolio where they have some control, they have some pricing power, and they are addressing that there. But I think that the services deceleration is something that 60 percent 
percent of that is really not within their control. And, and so that part is going to pref really going to compress the valuation multiple, in our opinion, because, it, look, I mean, when you have a services story, it just adds more resiliency to earnings. It adds, you know, more uh, confidence in the install base uh, story that, that Apple is migrating to, right? And, and when, you, when you go through a quarter where you see that services could potentially go X growth, I think that has to get reflected in the valuation multiple, which I don't think it, it's currently reflecting. So how much, Wamzi, I mean, unlike Amazon, uh, Alphabet, um, certainly Meta, uh, Apple is trading a little bit above where it was exactly a year ago. Everything else down like 30% plus. How expensive is this? And uh, what kind of a move lower should investors expect on a medium to worst case scenario? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that uh, the outperformance has been very material. It has been because estimates have remained relatively robust. And when we downgraded the stock, this was exactly our point, that the stock has outperformed because estimates haven't gotten cut yet. We think that estimates would have gotten cut but for the extra week, and we're going to see that in, in the March quarter where analysts are currently modeling, I think consensus is currently modeling a 25% sequential decline. If you add in the impact of the extra week, that's more like a 33% sequential decline. So if you see real risk to estimate revisions right around the corner, and when that takes place, we think that valuation multiple starts to compress. On a relative basis, you know, obviously this is a great franchise, you know, great cash flow generating machine. And so when you think about it in the overall context of the market, uh, we do think that it deserves a premium. So, you know, tell me where the market's going to be. I would add a 20% premium to that and then, you know, put, put, a, put a $6 earnings on, on that multiple. And so I think the downside risk on the story can be, you know, somewhere between $110, $120, depending on where the market goes. Um, so there is some meaningful downside and risk to the story, uh, in our opinion. Well, we look forward to unpacking the next quarter and certainly talking to you between now and then, Wamsi. Appreciate it. As always, uh, B of A's Wamsi Mohan on Apple. And I'm still live at the Twitter HQ. It's about 8.30 here in San Francisco, and employees should begin to scream in soon to brand new management as the Musk era begins. We'll be right back on Tech Check. Welcome back to Tech Check. It's a pretty momentous morning here in San Francisco. This building behind me, Twitter headquarters, the company, um, it has been a fixture here for over a decade, certainly all of my time in the city. There's questions now about the direction of free speech. A billionaire with no less than three CEO jobs. What comes next, guys? Cost-cutting, layoffs, those are all very likely. Twitter also will no longer be a public company, guys. More than a decade, Carl, I know that you remember that IPO very well in New York. Um, so Musk, guys, is not going to have to answer to shareholders publicly. No quarterly reports. He's going to be able to make all the changes that he wants to make. Ultimately, he wants to make this a super app or part of what he sees, this vision of X, guys. Um, John, maybe a position that someone like Mark Zuckerberg is envious, is envious of. He has to do all of this in the public eye with a lot of scrutiny. Scrutiny, but not accountability. And uh, you're right, it is momentous. Part of what strikes me here is that nobody seems to love the social media business right now. Mark Zuckerberg wants to invest mainly heavily in the metaverse. Elon Musk uh, you know, wants to build more of a membership business.
Carl, uh, and, and Jack Dorsey has said that the sin in Twitter was that it was a company at all. If anybody can make a business out of social media, uh, a profitable one, maybe TikTok. They're spending a lot to acquire users. I guess now would be a good time to make that case. Yeah, uh, and as uh, Dee mentioned, uh, uh, Neelai Patel's piece in The Verge today, the big question about moderation, uh, does moderation bring you advertising dollars or does it repel them? Is Twitter an engineering turnaround or a political mm -hmm. turnaround? Uh, questions we won't know for, for quite some time. Uh, in the meantime, uh, and the oh, I guess we'll, go ahead, Dee. In the, also, Carl, I would say, what are advertisers going to do? That's a big question, right? We saw Elon Musk sort of reach out to them yesterday very publicly. How are they going to feel about the changes ahead? And that $13 billion we've talked about of debt that he's got to finance. So all of this goes hand in hand and certainly be exciting to watch from this vantage point in particular. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, session highs, uh, 38.71, Dow's up 6.30. Elon Musk may prefer in-office work, but the rest of Silicon Valley surely does not. That story is coming up next. Don't go away. Let's get a gut check on T-Mobile. Shares up six and three quarter percent this morning, despite a miss on revenue and cuts to its full year sales forecast. The company reporting its strongest jump in subscribers since merging with Sprint in 2020, raking in more wireless and broadband customers than expected. Shares are up almost 30% this year. Tech Check's back after this. A volatile macro environment leading many tech names to cut costs and in the new world of remote work, that puts office space at the top of the list. Diana Olick has more on that this morning. Hey, Diana. Hey, Carl. Yeah, the tech sector has long been a leader in office leasing, but not so much right now. Tech office leasing in the first half of this year dropped to the lowest share in five years. That's according to a new report from CBRE, which measures office demand and rents in the 30 leading tech markets in the U.S. and Canada as tech heavy submarkets as well. Tech does still account for 16% of all office leasing, but rather than leading, it's now tied with finance and insurance and professional and business services. Last year, tech was at 21% of all office leasing. That's the highest of any sector. Okay, so why the drop? Jobs, tech job growth in the U.S. slowed to 2.1% year-over-year gain in the first half of this year. Compared that with a 4.5% pace in the second half of last year. But it's also tech workers choosing to work from home and so not using the office as much as they used to. Of course, all real estate is local, as are jobs, so some tech markets are faring better than others. Hiring over the last two years was still strong in Vancouver, Toronto, Austin, Seattle, and Montreal. That suggests stronger office leasing there as well. The top sub-markets where office rent gained worse in certain tech hubs in Philadelphia, Nashville, Seattle, San Diego, and Denver. There is a potential, of course, for pent-up demand given that venture capital funding in tech is on track for the second highest annual total on record after last year's peak. But these numbers don't yet factor in the tech weakness that we're seeing right now, which, of course, would go into office, John. Yeah, and they might not buy office space is one of the first things like they used to. Diana, I, I should say lease. Uh, Diana, thank you. Some big moves for big tech this week as results roll in. You can catch up with all of it on our podcast. That's the Tech Check podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. Two more things before we go. The last three days, I've been joining you from Greencastle, Indiana, the offices of the DePauw, Indiana's oldest college newspaper. 25 years ago, exactly 25 years ago, this was my office. Also, 
One year to the day, today marks one year to the day since Meta changed its name from Facebook to Meta to focus on what Mark Zuckerberg called the next frontier in social networks. A year later, the company has lost more than $600 billion in market cap, fallen to its lowest levels in six years. And despite investing more than $9 billion in their, you know, Metaverse vision, Reality Labs, still no legs in the Metaverse, but those yeah. legs are coming, Carl. We will see, John. It's an epic showdown between you and the architects of the metaverse, right, Dee? <laughs> yeah, that's right. He'll always be, be there for the other side. John, I love that little bit of John Fort history. A year ago, Laura and I, my producer, were on the side of the highway in Palo Alto when that name change occurred. Now we're outside of Twitter for this momentum occasion. There's been so much change, not just for these two companies, but for tech at large over the last year. It has been something to cover, Carl. Yep. Which next week's going to be busy, guys. Out in front of next year. Uh, we got central banks. We'll get jolts. We'll get jobs Friday and a lot of earnings. Airbnb, Uber, AMD, and a bunch of others. Have a good weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.